Welcome to Your Cathedral Podcast, a podcast from the Cathedral Church of St. Luke and St. Paul in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information on our church, please visit yourcathedral.org. Will you please pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, and today let your word be preached with boldness, heard with attentiveness, and obeyed with readiness, that we might grow in likeness to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated, friends. Well, good morning. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Hunter Myers, and I'm the student ministry director here at the Cathedral Church. I am a naturally born rule follower. You can probably tell this by the everything about me. I was an adult, married, college graduate before I was ready to finally rip the mattress tag off of my mattress. In fact, I'm the kind of person who doesn't road rage, I road reason. Rather than getting angry and yelling at someone out of the bottom of my heart, I instead calmly explain why that was the foolish decision, it interrupts the flow of traffic, and we'd all be better, as if they were sitting next to me, or as if they cared. And I think for self-described rule followers, we find comfort in rules because they explain the way things ought to function. They invite us into a safety of, oh, here's how things work. And ideally, that is how a rule or a law ought to function. We generally trust that if a good rule or a good law exists, as you grow, you'll be able to learn the wisdom of why it exists. Rules imply a certain kind of relationship between things or a kind of relationship between people. Laws governing what it means to be a citizen exist to cultivate our citizen relationships with one another. They support that kind of relationship. And I think that's why the Old Testament Mosaic law can seem so difficult, confusing, and even shocking to you. What kind of relationship is this law inviting God's people into? For example, not once, not twice, but three times, the Mosaic law commands you shall not boil a goat in its mother's milk. What form of life? Why was that law needed? What is going on in their culture where that was required? So sure, we can categorize the Mosaic law into its different categories of the moral law, which is binding for all people of all times, the civil law, which maintains just principles for Israel in their particular context, and the ceremonial law, which regulates their common worship together. But at the end of the day, if I were to read all 613 laws, which I promise I will not do so today, we would not leave feeling comfortable, or perhaps comforted. And deeper than just feeling uncomfortable, the law holds up a mirror to where we really are, in our sin, in our shame, in our guilt. And we already bear enough sin and shame and guilt in our world that it's, it's hard to imagine holding up and diving into something that invites us to take a truer, deeper look at ourselves. We can think of guilt as, I did something bad, and shame as, I am something bad. It's when it moves within, it becomes, it's hard to believe you are redeemable. So as we read God's law, it invites us to ask this question, is God's way, is God's law really what's best? So today, I challenge us to set aside maybe some prejudgments, some fears and trepidations, and pursue this question together. What does this law say about who God is and how he relates to his people? I invite you to turn with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, beginning in the first verse. That's Leviticus 19, beginning in verse 1. And you can find that if you need a pew Bible on page 97. 
Our scripture reading from Leviticus is a capstone text of this Mosaic law. So what is this law? Well, the book of Leviticus itself is an extended list and catalog of laws that God revealed to Moses about how Israel were to live as a people. And it's important to note that we are diving in right here, but the law at Mount Sinai came after God rescued his people in Israel, or uh, from Egypt, excuse me. The rules came after the rescue. It's important to remember that as we dive into this law. So in the opening verses of chapter 19, we see why this is a capstone text for this whole book. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. You shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So think about this here. In this second verse, the reason God gives for his people to keep the laws and to pursue holiness is because he is holy. That God is holy. His holiness is the ground and the source of their common life. So the rules then are not arbitrary. They're not made up. He's not a distant deity barking orders. They're rooted in who he is and his character, the one who rescued them, the one who made them a people and who will bring them into a good land. But let's think about that claim that God is holy. What does it mean for God to be holy? We sang it a bunch. What does it mean? Well, the kind of standard issue Bible college answer would be, it means to be set apart. But set apart for what? Or from what? For what purpose? Our friends at the Bible Project, they use this great image of the sun in our solar system and how that maybe helps us approximate what Scripture is getting at with the holiness of God and His goodness. First, God is utterly unique, like the sun in our solar system. Every other kind of heat and source of light is unlike what the sun does. Second, God is powerful. And just like the sun by its nature radiates and heats all that it touches, but if you get too close, it will consume. It is that powerful. So is our God. And finally, God is the source of all life. All life itself. In our solar system, the sun is what cultivates and provides heat and the life that the world and these worlds need. So these images of of the utter uniqueness, the other power, and the very source of life help us see a little bit of what Scripture is getting at, that God is holy. And so that's the logic beneath the book of Leviticus and the whole Mosaic law. The Holy One has come near to you. The one who is utterly beyond, the one who is utterly unique and powerful has come close. He's come to dwell intimately with his people. So holiness is the claim that his love makes on them. Because for them to be holy means to draw near to him, to partake in his life, his ways, his goodness. To encounter the holy love of God transforms everything about their life. And we see this as we see the catalog of law, laws listed in chapter 19 about loving your neighbor. That when you harvest, you shouldn't harvest everything. Leave a bit at the end for the sake of the poor and the sojourner. To not steal, to not deal falsely with your neighbors, to not oppress your workers. To pay the wages you say you will pay. To not be partial to the poor or to the rich. To not slander one another. To not hate your brother or your neighbor in your heart. To not backbite. To reason frankly. To love your neighbor as yourself. And as you heard those readings, I hope what you heard and what stood out to you is the phrase, I am the Lord. 
over and over and over. The Lord uses his proper name. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. The holiness of God, his presence, his life, his drawing near is what transforms how Israel was supposed to relate to one another and to their neighbors. So don't squeeze the land dry. The Holy One has provided for you and he is inviting you to participate in his provision for the sake of others. We see that the law is actually good because it is rooted in God's character, who he is and his being. And now, so there are a few realities we might want to note about the law. The first is that this was a covenant made between God and his people of Israel. But the universal uniqueness of that Lord, of his claim, makes a claim on all peoples. It was made with Israel, but it was for the sake of all nations. It isn't just a good way to be human. This is an insight, a revelation into how the creator wants people to be fully human in him. Second, this law is not transactional. So the Lord doesn't say, slaughter this many goats, I'll give you this much rain. It doesn't work like that. But it does have conditions. If the people did not follow through, they did not abide in this holy one's life, in his ways, it would have horrible consequences. And it did. Over and over again, we see that in their history. And finally, these conditions are rooted in the reality of who God is and his drawing near. It's as if you cannot be intimate with the Holy One and hate your neighbor at the same time. You cannot dwell in death and expect to find life. In the early days when I was in student ministry and just kind of getting my feet wet, I was walking through a particularly difficult and frankly traumatic experience uh, with one of our middle and high school students. And I was talking about it with my, my boss and my mentor, and we were sitting with it thinking, how do we make sense of this? How do we meet this family? How do we love them as God calls us to? And in that moment, my boss paused, she sighed, and she just said, I hate sin. And I, I hear that. It was like seared into my soul. The way she said it was just so salient. She wasn't particularly angry. She was grieved. She knew that all the rules we could apply, all the procedures we could follow through, and all the actions we could take could not repair and undo all that had happened. And so when I read these laws, part of what I hear is that voice of my old boss. When I feel the guilt, when I feel my own shame and the brokenness of the world, I hear the longing of our Father for all things to be made right. And if here we're only reading the law, it seems so tragic. Because the holy law, love of God has drawn near to his people. And his people were powerless to fix their hearts and love him fully in return and love their neighbors truly as themselves. But that law was never a way to ascend to the Holy One. It was a way to recognize where they really were in their relationship to him. That he had come and that's who they were. So if we're reading the law correctly, it invites us to long for the one who not only can tell us what is righteousness, but who has the power to give life to where there is death. The one who can transform us into the people who can love and live with the Holy One and with our neighbors. So don't fear. The law is not pointless. The law is what points us and guides us to Jesus. You see, under the law, if I were to touch a dead animal, it's Impurity, its contamination would go and contaminate me. But when the love of God, the holy love of God comes in Jesus Christ, his holiness, his holiness radiated from his touch. Impurity didn't go to him. He sanctified as he touched. He healed as he touched. He restored as he touched. 
He came down to bring that life of God to a world captive in sin and death. And on the cross, he's the one who hung and bore in his body the consequences of all our failures to live in light of that law. The resurrection, in turn, vindicates the claim that God's way, that God's creation, that his law and his way, his love really is what's best. He's vindicated it. He's overcome. And his resurrection life now abides in all who believe. So just as the law invited Israel to place their faith in the one who had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, so now in Christ, we are invited to believe that Jesus' life is what will heal us, what will bring peace, what will make us and transform us into the people who can't just look and say, what hope is there to say, there is hope. I can be healed. I can be fully known and fully loved. I can bring my shame. I don't know about you, I need that Easter life today. I need that Easter life within me every day. I get tired of running. I get tired of refusing help. Maybe you do too. I get tired of trying to cleanse my conscience by redefining what's good and evil in my own eyes. I get tired of it. I need a savior whose love has conquered everything that I'm facing and won't stop until he's finished and I'm able to be with him fully. The Scottish pastor and theologian George MacDonald opened one of his sermons with a breathtaking insight into this holy love of God. There he writes, for love, the love of God loves unto purity. Love has ever in view the absolute loveliness of that which it beholds. Where loveliness is incomplete, it spends itself to make what it loves more lovely. Therefore, all that is not beautiful in the beloved, all that comes between and is not of love's kind must be destroyed. And our God is a consuming fire. McDonald here, it helps us see the heart of God revealed in the gospel. In Jesus Christ, his love has conquered and his holy love will not stop until every part of us, every part of us can be united and with him. No shame, no guilt. The holy love of Jesus invites us into God's best friends. For us, for our neighbors, and for this world, And so Christian, I encourage you, read the Old Testament law. Don't shrink back. Christian parents, don't be afraid to read it. Read it with your kids. If it's weird, good. (laughs) It's supposed to be a little bit. It's supposed to be uncomfortable and to guide us and to ask what it says about God. Lean into it. If we're reading it well, we know and see that Jesus is the one who fulfills it. He is the one who can actually live that way, who invites us sharing his life so that we can participate in it. So don't neglect it. It will guide you in God's love and grace. Second, if Christ's love is what transforms us, if his resurrection life is what is new, is what gives us hope, forgiveness, then you can bring your guilt and your shame to him every day. We can bring our guilt and our shame, our brokenness, our fears to God and to one another. You'll often hear people today talk about having shame free spaces or being a shame-free person. And I think there's such a good heart beneath that because far be it from us to be shame-inducing or shame-piling. And I think the gospel, though, offers something even more amazing, a shame-safe space, a place, I don't know about you, I have shame of things I've done. I have sins I need help with. I have healing that needs to happen relationally, spiritually, emotionally, all the things. 
I need a place and a people I can bring that. I need a Savior who can meet me there. And we do have one. Friends, I pray that we, this cathedral community, can be that shame safe place, that sin safe place where we can bring it, our guilt safe place to be seen and loved in the Father. So today, I encourage you, bring it. Your guilt, your shames, your fears, your grief, whatever you bring today. As you speak with or pray with one of our prayer ministers, or as you pray with our clergy sometime this week, or as you pray in the quietness of your heart throughout this week, bring it to the Father. Leave fully known and fully loved. And finally, friends, we are called to love our neighbor like the law requires. As St. John says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And you might be thinking, all right, cool. But there's no way the Mosaic Law accounts for all the complexities of global capitalism in this crazy market. And you're, okay, fair enough. But it does account for greed and exploitation. You can't leave grain in your fields, sure, perhaps. But you don't have to squeeze every penny from every real estate interaction or every interaction you have. Christians, we don't have to skimp on being generous to the poor because of inflation. We don't. Our God has provided. Employers, we're called to pay our workers fair and timely wages, not to backbite and to murder our neighbors in our heart, whether that's our wealthy neighbor, our millennial neighbor, or our loud neighbor, our college student neighbor, or our voted for the other party neighbor, or our immigrant neighbor, or our different lifestyle neighbor. We're called to love them, give them the benefit of the doubt, to speak the truth, cannot remain close and in intimacy with the holy love of God and hate your neighbor in your heart, friends. But there is hope. And at the end of all things, John the Apostle tells us that the chorus song of God's people in Revelation 19 will be this. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And here John explains, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Friends in Christ, we are that bride. The dead in Christ will rise. Christ's holy love will finish his work in you and in this world. And when that work is done, the ways that we have loved God and loved our neighbors as ourselves, that's what will adorn us who we've become in Christ Jesus, but only because he first loved us and drew near. So friends, today, abide in that love. Amen? Amen.